You're listening to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. I love to run, period. You can always run faster. Forever, you're going to feel something. You're going to run into roadblocks, but that's also going to teach you how to handle things in life. I don't think we want to be like rocks where we're not affected by anything. It's not maybe a physical thing, but it's a mental thing. There's like two voices in me, alpha and beta. Really trying to do is just keep moving forward. Every single runner knows what that means. My life has a purpose, and maybe it's not what I thought it was going to be, but. There were times when I didn't think I would be able to come back. There's a lot of people that had different gifts, and they don't use it. I think if we all use our gifts, we could do something really special, not for ourselves, but for our family, if we're really good. We can do something for our community, wherever we live. Hey, what's up, everyone? It's your host, Mario Fraioli. We are back with the second installment of our Coach to Coach series. And here to set this one up for me once again is Chris Douglas. How's it going? Not too bad. How are you? Pretty good, pretty good. I'm super excited about this conversation, albeit it's a little long, but everyone listening at home, just trust us on this. It's worth totally the two worth it. plus hours. Yeah. Totally worth it. Yeah, on the show this week, we have Coach Don Schwartz, who is, I mean, this guy, he's a swim coach in Marin. Mm-hmm. And again, we're going to keep this intro super short, but this guy's a freaking legend. He is a legend, a very understated legend in the world of swim coaching. He's a Hall of Fame coach. The American Swim Coaches Association inducted him, I don't know how many years ago, um, but he's, you know, he's, he's a legend in the sport. He's been coaching for a long time at all levels. He coaches youth. He coaches adults. He's coached Olympians. He's, co- he's coached world record holders, um, and he is largely regarded as sort of the forefather of modern swim training. Back in the early 70s, he introduced a concept called cycle training, which is essentially just cycling between hard and easy days, which he actually learned from a few race walkers and track and field coaches. But, you know, at the time, this was revolutionary in swimming and is really the basis for how many swimmers train today. Yeah, I mean, I think like this this episode to me was kind of like a masterclass on how to become an awesome coach. Mm -hmm. And it's about being thoughtful it's about being methodical. It's about not taking yourself too seriously, but just trying to do the best job you can for the people you're serving. And um, yeah, just a super interesting story. Yeah, Don's got a super interesting story. It goes back several decades. Yeah. Um, and I mean, he aside from just like what he's done in, in coaching, um, one of the things that we talked about later in the conversation, he founded what was called the Creative Performance Institute. And he ran that for eight years and essentially gave, you know, workshops to teams and I think organizations too, just about the importance of, of mindset, you know, the mental side of performance. And we talked a lot about that in this conversation. Mm-hmm. It was really a through line um, in addition to getting just his background on how he got into swim training. Cause what's also unique is, I mean, he was never a competitive swimmer himself. Yeah. Um, and he became one of the best swim coaches in the world. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Plus, he's a local Massachusetts guy, too. So, you know, big ups for that. <laughs> yeah, which I didn't know going into the conversation. I mean, and how I got introduced to Don was through my wife, Christine, who swims in his master's program here in Marin County at North Bay Aquatics. And she just raves about Don. She loves going to his workouts, the community, and just the environment that he's cultivated at, at North Bay um, with the master's program. But he also coaches, you know, some very, like, 
high level um, youth athletes who go on to compete in college Olympic trials and even beyond. It's amazing. It's amazing. So we'll leave it at that for the intro to this week's podcast with Don Swartz because it's like two plus hours of solid gold. I think a lot of Frank Gagliano type vibes are (laughs) present in this one, if you remember that conversation from 2019. But before we get into it, let's just shout out the sponsors that make this episode possible. Okay. First up, we have Tracksmith. Longtime partner of the Morning Shakeout. I am stoked to be associated with this brand. I love everything that they do from the apparel that they create to the events that they cultivate to the content that they put out in the world. Everything celebrates just the history and culture of the sport that I and that many of you listening love so much. Right now, they've got their cross-country collection out. We are in the middle of cross-country season here in the U.S., my favorite season of competitive running. Um, You've got high school cross-country, collegiate cross-country, and even post-collegiate cross-country. I mean, I'm over 40 years old, and I'm still competing with a local team here in the Bay Area, hoping to go to nationals later this year. It's neither here nor there. Uh, Their cross-country collection, it is built on the Van Cortland line, which are some of their original pieces. They've got some fresh new colors this fall to celebrate cross-country. And also, as we've talked about last couple episodes, the Brighton Base Layer. Mm-hmm. It is getting cooler here in the mornings. I it's am almost pulling. time. Yeah, not, no, it is time, man. I've been pulling mine out. Um, How early have you been running? Every few days. I mean, 6 a.m., 6.30 a.m. I mean, it's right around 50 degrees, but they've got two base layers. There's a short sleeve and a long sleeve. And you can wear them as a base layer and put a longer top or a jacket over them. Or you can just wear them by themselves, which is what I do right now. I've got the short sleeve version. Um, they have a long sleeve version. It's a merino wool blend, so it's super comfortable. It wicks moisture, regulates temperature, and it does not smell when you sweat in it. I mean, in theory, you could wear it for a few days on end before you even throw it in the washer, and you know, no one will ever know. So uh, check out the cross-country collection at tracksmith.com slash Mario. And if you are a new Tracksmith customer, when you check out, use the code Mario New. That's M-A-R-I-O, capital N, capital E, capital W, and you'll save $15 off your first purchase of $75 or more. If you're already a Tracksmith customer, there's a different code that you can use. It's Mario Give. That's M-A-R-I-O, and then all caps G-I-V-E. That will get you free shipping on your next order and 5% of your purchase will go to support the Friendly House in Worcester, Massachusetts, which is an organization that is near and dear to me. It's where I spent a good chunk of my childhood after school program, summer program, bitty basketball. Uh, it does a lot for the inner city in Worcester, Massachusetts, and I am thrilled that a percentage of every purchase using that code goes to support the Friendly House. So that's tracksmith.com slash Mario. I love it. I love it. Up next is Gooder. Gooder. I mean... We love these sunglasses, right? Love them. What are your favorite? Well, you know, I'm also a fan of the OGs, but um, I kind of mixed it up a little bit with the colorways. Like, I love their Pride collection. Okay. Um, I have to share those now with my daughter, incidentally, because she likes them as well. So, you know, I'm not afraid of the bright colors. But, um, but yeah, I think uh, I would not... Midnight, uh, was it Keith's? Uh, Keith, mid- and, Keith and Mick's, mid- no, Mick and Keith's Midnight Ramble. Yeah, that would not be my first choice. Really? Yeah. Oh, I mean. I would go with something a little bit more. Uh, fun. Yeah, a little, something a little bit more crazy. Well, I mean, I'm I'm just not as not as fun as you, I guess. Uh, well, boring maybe, guy. That's why well, I like the OGs. Uh, Mick and Keith's Midnight Ramble, they're basically blue 
Frame so, sunglasses. So if uh, the flamingos on a booze cruise showed up at your house, you wouldn't wear them? <laughs> no, I probably, I probably would not wear those. I imagine those are pink. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, not... I mean, I got no problem with pink. They just don't look great on me. But, hey, whatever type of sunglasses you like, Gooder is going to have a pair for you. What I love about these sunglasses, they don't bounce, they don't slip, they're polarized to protect your eyes. I mean, they come in just a wide range of styles and colors. I wear them anytime that I'm outside. Just, there's a lot of sun here in California, so I wear them running. I wear them walking the dog. I wear them when I'm driving. Um, they're 25 to 35 bucks a piece, so they're super affordable. And if you want to support the morning shakeout and treat yourself to a pair or maybe two or three of Gooders, head over to gooder.com slash Mario. That's G-O-O-D-R.com slash Mario. Or enter the code Mario15. That's Mario15. When you check out, you'll get free shipping on your order. And as they like to say, your face will thank you. Let's get into this conversation with Coach Don Swartz. Well, Don, I don't know how many of your emails my wife, Christine, has forwarded to me over the years, but I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time, and it's a thrill to welcome you to the Morning Shakeout podcast. Well, thank you for uh, the invitation. I want to talk about primarily coaching with you, and you are a swim coach. You've been coaching North Bay Aquatics for I don't know how many years now and other places prior to that, but I also know that you were never a competitive swimmer yourself. And I find that to be just really, really fascinating. And where I want to start is just learning how did you find swimming or how did swimming find you? Well, I was uh, raised in the East and I went to a small school in Massachusetts in high school and um, was a three-sport athlete, played football. And um, because we were in Massachusetts, uh, we had a ski hill in the back of the school and with a thousand foot rope tow, probably only maybe 150, 200 vertical feet, but we skied every afternoon after school in the winter and then played lacrosse in the spring and um, worked in the summer and did that through high school and got into college and ended up at Middlebury College in Vermont. Mm -hmm. And um, my dream was to be on the ski team and uh, I had no idea of how difficult that was going to be. And um, I was fearless on the skis, and I liked fast, um, but I didn't have very many skills. And so um, the coach informed all of us freshmen that the top four freshmen at the end of the year would be invited to the varsity, and I was fifth. And I just couldn't do anything to get past the guy in front of me. I was, I didn't have the skill set, whatever. So I played lacrosse as a sophomore in high school. And then as a junior, I um, dropped out of school, came out to California, had a spinal fusion because I had back issues, congenital defect, and um, got a job working at the Ladera Rec Center down in uh, Menlo Park uh, off of Alpine Road. And had a job as a water safety instructor. So I taught classes from 9 to noon and lifeguarded from 1 to 6 or 7 whenever the pool was open. And at the first meeting of the staff, 
uh, the pool manager said, does anybody want to coach the swim team? Nobody put their hand up. And she said it wasn't really a big deal. They had local meets, uh, summer league meets against other teams. There were three or four other teams, and it was a very, very the kids practiced from noon to one while there was a break between lessons and free swim, public swim. Nobody raised their hand. And she said, I can't believe nobody here wants the extra hour on their time card. And I'm looking around, and I put my hand up. And that's how I got started. It was that simple. While you were still in high school? No, I was in college. Oh, this I, is this, college. This okay. was after, I get, I after my junior year. Okay. Um, and uh, there was a girl on the staff whose brother swam with George Haynes at the Santa Clara Swim Club. And he would come up and give me a few pointers and bring some of his friends and they would all walk around the pool and flex their muscles for the girls and it was a it was pretty much a california pool scene as you can imagine so uh at the end of that um summer i had my um my brother and a couple of his friends wanted to do some more swimming and i asked around what do you do in the winter time and there was a an aau team down at the bottom of the hill, Ladera Oaks Swim and Tennis Club had the Ladera Oaks Aquatic Club. And so I went down there and introduced them to George French, who was the coach, and said, these guys want to swim. And he said, here's how we do it. And they got started. This was actually the, the end of my sophomore year. Um, at any rate, I went back to school, then dropped out partway through the winter at the, at the semester break, came out and had the spinal fusion and so I'm living a quarter mile from Ladera Oaks and I can't ride in a car or drive for six months but I can walk so I'm tired of watching daytime TV so I walk down to the pool reintroduce myself to George French and said I'm going crazy at home Um, can I coach he says I have no budget I said, I don't need to be paid. I just need something to do. So he said, I give you this lane of six-year-olds, and here's a book by Cecil Cohen, and read it and ask me any questions you've got. And that's an example, yet again, often you see it in sports, giving the most important job to the least qualified person. <laughs> right? You got these six-year-olds who are like moldable clay. Yeah, they're Play-Doh. They're, exactly, and you can do anything, with it, but but I didn't know what to do. So anyway, that's how I got started. And one thing led to another. Um, ended up at Davis uh, for a year. They had a an AAU team up there that needed a coach, so I had six months of, ex- four months of experience with George French. So I got there, and I coached there for a year, and um, you'll remember the name Dave Scott. From, mm-hmm. uh, so he was on that swim team. And I coached him in swimming for a year. And, um, and uh, then the job in San Rafael came open with the San Rafael Swim Club. And so I went down and I looked at the team and I got interviewed and I got the job because I was the only person who interviewed. And they needed somebody. And so anyway, that's what that... That's how that happened, and, that, and I moved to San Rafael in 1968, and I've been here in, in Marin since then. Let's hit pause 
right there. I, I liked you already just because of how glowingly my wife, Christine, speaks about you. Uh, she's been swimming for you at North Bay Aquatics now, I, I'm going to guess, since 2016, since we moved up to Marin. She forwards me your emails. She speaks very highly of you. I had no idea until you said it at the very beginning of this conversation that you grew up in Massachusetts. I also grew up in Massachusetts. So I feel a fondness for that. Where in Massachusetts did you grow up? We lived in Palmer, Massachusetts. So you are proper Western Massachusetts. Right. And... Um and a um, little, little town off the turnpike there mm-hmm. between Springfield and Worcester. And uh, went to Munson Academy, which is now Munson and Wilbraham. Mm-hmm. Uh, small school, 8 through 12, 250 boys. Um, pretty good high school athlete, given the circumstance. <laughs> you know, I, wasn't, I wasn't all world or all state or all New England, but I was... All months in academy, and so there was all you had to do was show up and you could be on the team, yeah. And so there was lots of opportunity. Thinking about that time in your life, you mentioned how you were a fearless skier, but you didn't have the skill. Did you have coaches in your life at the time that had a profound influence on you? Probably the biggest uh, influence on me was Phil Cardoni, he was a history teacher and a football coach at Munson Academy. There was the, the person, the different guys who were the ski coaches didn't know anything about, so they were just, they needed somebody there. Um, so I learned, I learned about skiing by watching television. Jean-Claude Keeley was the star of the day, and you watch how he does it, and then it was just all, all imitation. No, I never had a lesson. But uh, Coach Cardoni was uh, was passionate about football, and I remember sitting in a study hall, and he's up on the dais, and he's keeping an eye on all us boys, and he points at me and goes, with his finger, beckons me up, and I'm going, what did I do? What did I do? You know, and I went up there, and he had a new play that he had diagrammed, and he wanted my feedback on it. I thought that was pretty cool. That you know, he's the coach, the expert, asking me, the novice, my input on did I think this play would work? I was a, an end. I played defense and offense because we had a small team, and um, and I remember that like we're sitting here today. That was that was really cool to be included in the discussion and the decision making process, and. Um, so that and George French at Ladera Oaks, who said the goal should be to talk to some swimmer every lap that they swim. So if you swim a thousand yards, you should make 40 comments. And if you're walking back and forth on the pool deck, you can hold your elbow up and point to it, and a swimmer will know that you're pointing, you, you know. Or you stand on the blocks, and if they're swimming backstroke and their hands are crossing over, you can do this. Um, that probably never happened, but that was a goal. So you need to be involved with the swimmers. You can't just say, okay, we're going 10 100s on the 130. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll leave on the top. Let's go and put some energy into it, boys and girls. That's not effective coaching. Um, so I learned early from my football coach in high school and George French 
that you need to actually talk with the athletes and communicate with them and give them feedback and and and, and that lets them know that you're involved and so um I, th- I think they respect that and they respond to it. Do you think that your football coach asking you for input on that play when you were complete novice, just a player on the team, planted a seed in you that has grown into where you are today? Well, I'm 77, and that happened when I was 16, and I still remember it. Yeah. So that's the answer. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think the best coaches learn from their best athletes. Um, Johnny Weissmuller was yelled at by his coach to swim with straight arms. Johnny Weissmuller, most people know him as Tarzan. He's also the first guy to break a minute for 100 meters freestyle. And his coach said, you have to swim with your arms straight. Because that's how you move through the water fastest. Think of the paddle wheel on the back of a, a riverboat. And so he didn't want the coach to yell at him, so he swam in practice with his arms straight. But in the meet, he swam with his arms bent. Because he knew that was a faster way of doing it. And um, so while a lot of coaches know a lot more than most of their athletes... There are some athletes who intuitively find a better way to fit in the water and move through the water. Um, swimming is challenging because you don't have gravity working for you. And uh, we've been watching the track and field stuff on TV, mm-hmm. and uh, you watch those athletes, and they've got they're pushing off that ground pretty hard. And um, the swimmer who pushes super hard on the water without connecting to it, their hands just go backwards. And when your hands go backwards, your body doesn't go forward very well. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. North Thornton, who's uh, unfortunately the late, but the great coach at Berkeley, watched Matt Biondi swim. Biondi, multiple world records holder, Olympian, um, he noticed that Matt Biondi, when he put his hand in the pool and started his stroke, he initiated the pull by just pitching his hand just slightly with putting pressure on the place below your ring finger and your uh, pinky instead of on the center of your palm. And Nort just was watching that, and after a while I said, so why do you do that? Why don't you just put your hand in and Go like that with your with your wrist and get get pressure essentially early on your palm. And Biondi's response was, well, I feel it gives me a better grip on the water. He didn't know why. He just felt that it gave him a better grip on the water. So North starts thinking about that and then discovers there's a line of fascia that runs up your arm between your bicep and your tricep into your armpit. And if you just pitch your hand two degrees and start with that pressure, it's easier to engage your lat. And your lat is a much bigger muscle than your pec. Mm -hmm. And so the best swimmers know how to engage that big bat wing muscle in their back. So there's an example. So then Nort watches Matt and then takes that information and shares it with the rest of the team. 
And so that kind of thing is, uh, you know, in, in our sport, uh, one of the f- most renowned coaches is Bob Bowman, who coached Michael Phelps. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sure Bob learned as much from Michael as Michael learned from Bob. You know, because if you're paying attention, you know, I, I'm pretty sure S- Stephen Kerr, Steve Kerr has learned a lot from Steph Curry. So I think the really top flight coaches look at who's who's running the fastest, who's making the scoring the most points, who can block the best, who can do whatever it is in swimming, who can swim the fastest. And what are they doing that the other people aren't doing? Yeah. I think that's exactly right. And you look for those common threads and more often than not I certainly see this in running track and field. The researcher, the science and the data catches up a few years afterward and explains why that actually works. Yeah. And, and, you know, physiologically, the, the human, uh, I mean, I'm no scientist, so I'm willing to be wrong, but it doesn't appear to me, I've been coaching since 1966, doesn't appear to me that the human body has changed that much. Better nutrition, sure. Uh, more vitamins, bigger humans, yes. But... Um, Capacity and the, cap- the capabilities, not the capacity, the capabilities probably are pretty much the same as they were 50, 100 years ago. Jim, Jim Thorpe would be a hell of an athlete today at something. Um, so what we do know is we know more about how to train with weights, and we do know more about nutrition, and we do know more about um, a lot of stuff, but... You know, the, the world of swimming didn't know about cycle training. We're going to get into that. Let's, let's hit pause. Okay. But um, so, so anyway, I, I really think that, um, that the coach has the responsibility to the athlete to watch and pay attention and see what's going on. And um, so that's why... That's why coaching to me is so fascinating because, you know, I can go down every day and I can watch our master's team and I can learn something by watching who's doing what. And um, so I, I really, you know, I really think, uh, I think coaching is really unique in, in many respects because there's no, uh, there's no set formula and probably like many of today's computer geniuses or, or who we perceive, I perceive as a computer genius, you know, um, somebody right now is figuring out what's, what, what is going to replace the iPhone. You know, and I don't know what it is, but, but I'll probably be buying one. <laughs> so. I was going to ask you this a little bit later in the conversation, but you just touched on it right now so let's go a little bit deeper on it what do you view the primary role of a coach or what do you view as the primary role of a coach probably two pieces to that um i think i think we have a responsibility to empower the athlete to be great, whatever that means for that person and their interest level. 
and um, to get them to look beyond what is obvious and um, to get them to think, I wonder what would happen if I... Fill in the blank. You know? And um, every kid knows what it takes to get from junior high to high school. You have to pass eighth grade. And then you get to high school. And then to graduate, you have to go all four years and get those check marks. Um, In the sport of swimming, if you want to make the Olympic team, you have to first make the Olympic trial cut. You have to get invited to the meet. And it's a time. And if you don't have that time and you're five seconds short of that time, is there a way for you to make capture those five seconds? Then when you get to the meet... You have to make the finals. And in the sport of swimming, only the top two get to go to the team, unless you have a relay spot. So it's very well documented. And the trick is, um, the the sport is brutal in that sense. Um, Nobody's judging you. Nobody's saying, you look really good, like a figure skater has a nice outfit or a, a nice form, and then they have style points and divers and gymnasts. Track and field, get in front of as many people as possible, and you get to the podium. Get in front of everybody, you get the top step on the podium. Now, how you do that from where you sit today, that's, the, that's where the coach comes in and, and tries to give the athlete an opportunity to say, geez, maybe I could. And, you know, I had this idea that I could make the – you know, like many kids, I dreamt of being a, an Olympic skier. The first step to that was getting on the varsity. And I had no idea how to do that, and so I didn't. Um, you know, probably, probably many, many high school football players probably think they, they dream of playing football in college. Some of the bigger, faster ones think of playing at a bigger, faster university, and then they say, oh, maybe I could make the NFL. You start doing the math. There's 53 spots, and there's 32 teams or whatever there are, 32, and so you have to be one of the top 1,500 people in your profession. If I'm one of the, one of the top 1,500 people in Silicon Valley, I'm nobody special. It's the, it's the exceptional ones. So how do you get somebody to just consider that as a possibility? Now, Thomas Edison reportedly, I don't know this for a fact, but I'm told, so I believe, <laughs> failed over a thousand times to make the light bulb. And he just reportedly said, well, okay, that, that doesn't work. I'll try something different. That doesn't work. And he just kept by a process of elimination, and finally it, something worked. Was he a genius? Well, he, he probably was pretty smart, but there were a lot of smart people. You know, I mean, there's there's a lot of people who can run pretty fast. There's a lot of people who can swim pretty fast, and there's a lot of people who can coach pretty well. Do you want to be exceptional? And what do you need to do to do that? Well, in, in the coaching world, you need to be informed. That's a good segue segue to go back to something that you were talking about earlier in the late 60s when you got your start i mean 
you said it yourself, you were looking for something to do, but you had had those seeds planted earlier in high school from, you know, your, your football coach at first where, you know, you talk to the athlete, um, you observe, you get to understand, and you didn't have that competitive swimming background yourself. So, you know, you didn't have that experience to go off of. All you had was at first that observation. Um, I'm interested in how you developed just your, your knowledge base in addition to just, you know, watching athletes swim in the pool. Well, I learned to swim when I was five years old in the Connecticut river. My dad was a minister and he was the associate pastor at a couple of big churches uh, first in Meriden, Connecticut, and then in Hartford, Connecticut. And as such, one of his responsibilities was to be the camp director. So as the kid in the family, I got dragged, woe is me, to summer camp. I spent all summer in summer camp. How nice was that? And I learned to swim and paddle boats and eventually to sail and, you know, that kind of stuff. So I knew how to swim And I was a good swimmer. I do know how to swim, but I never swam competitively because that wasn't part of things that were available to me. So I just started, you know, I I don't believe there's a gene in us that is a competitive gene. Now, I could be wrong on that. I've been wrong on a bunch of stuff in my life. But I believe it's learned. You learn somewhere along the way. Um, again, went to this small private school. We had to wear slacks and a shirt and a tie and a coat. And because we didn't have much money, I had one white shirt. So one day a week, I looked pretty good. And the rest of the time, I looked kind of funky. I had plaid shirts and stuff didn't match. And they gave me the nickname at school, Farmer. Not in a kind way. Well, I learned that if I could hit them pretty hard on the football field, I'd get their respect. And on the lacrosse field. And if I could beat them on the ski hill. So I learned competitiveness. I learned, you know, faster is better bigger, stronger. I learned that that, and that fed me. And I think probably a lot of coaches today who are really successful missed something somewhere, didn't get what they wanted somewhere. And George Haynes reportedly has said that uh, one of the reasons he's the coach that he was was because he wasn't as good a swimmer as he wanted to be. And so he said, well, I, but I can be a coach. Um, I remember a, a specific instance. We have a very small football team, very small schools. You can imagine, and parents were allowed on the sideline at the football games. And I was the end, and I was on the right side of the, visualize this, the right side of the line, and I ran across, and across the middle. The quarterback threw me the ball, and I caught the ball, and then I turned up running down on the left sideline aiming for a touchdown about 40 yards away. And there was a defensive back angling to come and catch me. And I'm running pretty hard. And out of the left ear hole of my helmet, I hear, Go, Swartz, go! And I look over there, it's my father. He's running down the sideline with me. And there was no way he was going to beat me to the end zone. 
the guy chasing me had no chance. You know, that competitiveness um, is something that I always, um, I always had. I, I didn't have to beat everybody at everything. I wasn't that guy. But given an environment where we're starting to measure, mm-hmm. I wanted to measure up. And so that's that's sort of how I got started in that. You know, we, you know, we had little league baseball. I wasn't good enough to make the team, so I got put over there on on the pee wee team. And there weren't enough guys to make a team, so we didn't have a team. So that was it for baseball for me. You know, so I just think, you know, in our sport. We have a lot of kids on our team who know how to swim. And they go to meets because that's what we do. But I'm not sure all of them really give a rat's ass about how fast they go. Is that something you can spot in an athlete, that competitiveness? Like, you get to know them well enough, you're like, they have it. You either have it or you don't. I, I, I think I'm adept enough after decades to be able to see people who have something that they want to, that they're passionate about. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, um, to expand the analogy a little bit, for a while, um, I owned a check cashing business. We, you know, cash people's paychecks and payday advance loans and, Western Union and money orders and that type of thing. And 40 years ago, I hired this woman who was a Vietnamese lady. Um, and after about six months, I knew she really liked numbers and that she was really honest and that she had a brain in her head and she knew it and she liked to use it. Well, she ended up being my partner for 30 years. We since closed the business, but... Um, you know, you, you spot things in people. Uh, we've got a girl on our team right now. Just finished her sophomore year. She's starting her junior year. She's a pretty good athlete. And turns out she's a pretty good swimmer. She's also a pretty good soccer player. So now she's in the dilemma. Soccer or swimming, which, which is going to be my primary sport. Well, she's already, as a swimmer, as a 15-year-old at what is called the futures level, which is one step below the junior national level in swimming, that's a pretty good indication of skill. And she went to Sacramento this uh, summer, and she made a final in the 200-meter backstroke. She didn't win, but she went pretty fast. She was pretty excited about that. So I'm having a little conversation with her at the meet. So I know you like soccer, and you got swimming. So let me ask you, do, do you think you have a better shot at being a collegiate swimmer or a collegiate soccer player? And she smiled, and she knew the answer, because I knew the answer, at least at this point. I'm trying to get her to put the soccer ball down and be a swimmer. So I'm teasing her a little bit. and get, She says, probably a swimmer. I said, yeah. 
you're not there yet, but can you be? Absolutely. And uh, a girl on our team who just this, just this week accepted a nice scholarship offer from Santa Barbara. She came to us as a freshman, and uh, she was pretty good swimming backstroke. And now she's a national qualifier, and multiple colleges wanted her to swim. And she's still having a little bit of a hard time wrapping around, wrapping her brain about, around who she is, has become, let alone who she could be. And that, I think, is the coach's job. It's something, she's got physical skills, and we can, we, we can and she will improve those. But the, the, the real next step for her is accepting the fact that she's great. Mm-hmm. I think to go off of what you said a little while ago, I think that's part of our job is to look for that in people and spot it. And when we see it, if the athlete's willing to help them bring it out and express that. I mean, I'm sure you would agree with this. I mean, the most gratifying thing as a, as a coach is watching someone do something that wasn't even on their radar, you know, however many months or years or however long ago. But you spotted that in them. You plant that seed of belief. They trust you enough to work toward it, and then it blossoms into something pretty special. Yeah. My, my personal belief is that um, everybody on the planet is in the right place at the right time, probably more than once. And the key to capitalizing on that is, first of all, you have to know you're in the right place. And then secondly, you have to know what to do with it. How do you know when you're in the right place? Um, Oftentimes, you make a mistake and you do something that's like, whoa, like Bob Beeman's jump. You know, he was a 27-foot long jumper. That's how he looked at himself. He's trying to improve two or three inches. And he jumps 29, two and a half or whatever that was. And he was like, whoa. And then he walked around saying, I can't believe it. And he never jumped 28 feet. He went back to being a 27-foot long jumper. So somebody pops one, you have to get them to say, you did that. That's a, that actually happened. And now you have to figure out how to internalize that and believe it about yourself. You know? And um, I really think... Uh, I think the world is full of, as we, you've heard this in coaching, right? The world's full of untapped potential. And uh, so, you know, I, I, I just, I think you can take an ordinary athlete and make them extraordinary. And if they'll give themselves an opportunity to get out of their own way, in essence, they can be really special. Um, you know, there's, there's only one world record holder at a time. But there's a lot of, you know, watching that track and field business, you know, top three people, that is a lot of people getting top three and pretty pleased about it. And if they were at the Olympics, they'd go home with medals. And there's something special about an Olympic medal. Um, a conference medal if you're a collegiate athlete. A high school state medal if you're a high school state athlete, you know. Um, so... 
You know, I, I really believe that uh, you have to help people consider. You know, we talk to our athletes about being in the right place at the right time and, um, and being aware of it and then doing something with it. You know? And if, you know, it, and they've, we've got choices. Every day you have choices. You're going to go to practice or you're going to go and do this other thing which you can justify, you know, uh, I'm, uh, you know, I got to do this for my senior project. We've got people on our swim team, not many, but we've got, let me think about this, one, two. We have 30 kids in our training group right now. We have three that have not missed a practice in a year. They don't even get sick. <clears throat> they get a little scratchy throat, but they figure out a way to get past it. Now, you get COVID or strep throat, you're going to miss practice. But it's just like there are many people who are super healthy, who get knocked back once in a while. And then there's people who are always getting a cold in the winter and missing. You know, that's that to me is in your brain. You know? It's interesting to hear you describe that. It makes me think of legendary track and field coach Dan Paff and I have this clip I think I've shared it in my newsletter before the gist of it is perfect doesn't exist and he's talking about in the realm of injuries and physical therapy and he says look he's like if he's like I've coached 80 some odd Olympians he's like none of them have ever been perfect if he left it up to the doctor the physical therapist and they just looked at him you know they would never run they'd never train he's like they would never get to that point he's like you have to learn how to learn what your limitations are and kind of work within a range and yeah if something's severe enough yeah you got to rest you've got to take it off but you've got to kind of learn how to work within those imperfections because you're never going to hit you know 10 out of 10, everything's good, okay, like, you know, go hit it. Um, you still got to show up to practice more often than not, even if a little something's bugging you and knowing, like, what's a real injury versus what's something that you can, you know, work through that's in the allowable range. Yeah, I think the the top-level performers in, in and out of sport are more, if you look at the spectrum, on the one end is failure and on the other hand is perfection. I don't think they're interested in being perfect. They're interested in being excellent. Whatever that is on any given day in any given situation. And they're not worried about failing. And as such, they don't spend most of their time on the failure end of the scale. They spend most of their time on the excellence end. Babe Ruth, right? held the home run record for decades, also held the strikeout record. And his attitude was that if I strike out two or three times in a game or fail to get a hit for a week, why should I worry? Let the pitchers worry. They're the ones who are going to suffer later on. And so I think when we talk about looking at the spectrum of results that are available, whether it's on this repeat in a workout or on the workout or on the season. I think if we look at it and say, you know, I'm going to be a risk taker. I'm going to take some chances, knowing full well that some of them aren't going to pan out. And the more important the event, 
sometimes the bigger the risk that needs to be taken. And so a lot of these high-level performers do what's commonly referred to as a catastrophe report. You say, okay, I'm going to take this risk. What's the worst thing that can happen? The worst thing is X, Y, or Z happen. Can I deal with that? And if the answer is, yeah, I can deal with that, then I take the risk. And I'm okay. And that's how you explore your boundaries, and that's how you push the proverbial envelope. And I really like those, those uh, uh, Navy SEALs thing about, you know, what happens under pressure. And you, you hear coaches say this all the time. My best athletes rise to the occasion. Or the coach will give a motivational speech before the team, you know. And this is a big game. We have to win this game so we can go to the Rose Bowl. And we need to rise to the occasion. And, this, and SEALs believe that you fall to your level of preparation. And so you want to keep making sure that that floor is pretty damn high so that when you stumble, you're not stumbling very far. And uh, so, that, again, we get back to, you know, she comes to every workout. You know, he's in the weight room every time the weight room is available. And he's not in there. He's in there picking up heavy things. You know, to get stronger. Somebody once said, the problem with weightlifting is that it hurts. Well, <laughs> if you pick up a light weight, it won't ever hurt. And you won't ever get stronger. So, anyway, uh, yeah, I think... And, and one of the reasons I go to the pool is because I'm looking to be motivated. I'm looking to put forth an idea and see who's willing to tackle it and who can pull it off, even just for a lap. If they can do that, Christine this morning said she got her stroke count down two strokes. We're doing stroke count work. And I said, two strokes, that's a lot. And I said, you do a half Ironman, that's a lot of arm strokes that you don't have to take. She says, she sh smiled, do you know Christine's smile? Yeah, that's a lot of strokes. <laughs> so that's, you know, that's the kind of thing. I mean, I'm going to the pool this afternoon, and I'm going to see something, and I'm going to get excited about it, and I'm going to let that athlete know that I'm excited by what they just did. And, um, and that excitement might carry over to them and might make them more eager to come back the next day and try again. Well, and I think everyone's looking for that to some degree. Or needs that to some degree. It goes both ways, as you yeah. just described. Yeah, yeah. I mean, would you go to the? Would you? Would you play ball on a team that nobody ever gave anybody pump ups? He goes, and this is a drag. You know, we got people who are really good swimmers who just they just don't like to swim, but they really like games. It's good for them. There's water polo. You can go play water polo. Take your swimming skills and play a game. There's people who love to run but don't really love to run around in circles or cross the golf course. So they go to soccer. You know, it's a game. It's involving running, but it's a game. And it's just, you know, I think it's incumbent upon parents to find something that their kids are good at 
to the one by good at are drawn to. Could be the glee club, the debate team, the chess. Anything but. There's got to be enthusiasm behind go, it. Anything but going to the mall or smoking dope behind the bleachers. You know, it's you can find something that you're good at, that your youngsters are good at, and encourage them to do that. In the sport of swimming, we have, I forget exactly right off the tip of my tongue, but there's like 15 or 16 events. Find one or two of those that, that get you excited. You know, you may not ever want to swim 200 butterfly, but you might get excited about a 100 butterfly. Okay, so let's, let's, get, let's, let's explore that. I see this with a lot of the age group adult athletes that I work with. If there's a bunch of people doing a marathon, I don't run. I don't really like the marathon. I don't like running long distance, but all these people are doing it. I might as well, if you don't enjoy it, drop down, maybe race a Twilight Meet 5000. Go race an open road mile somewhere. Or someone who doesn't like the the high-pressure situation of trying to hit a time in the marathon but likes going long, get on the trails. Go run an ultra. You know, I mean, go just explore. You know, you don't even have to enter like a type of race. And I mean, I have some version of that conversation all the time with, you know, with with runners who feel pigeonholed into, you know, one type of event, maybe because it's a group that's doing it or that's what they see on the internet, whatever it happens to be. It's like running, much like swimming. It's like, it's so diverse. There's so many different things that you could do, environments that you could run in, races that you could run or races that you could, you know, non-races that you could run, you know, type of thing. Um, and I think people don't, uh, I think people lose sight of that sometimes. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's like, find something that piques your interest, you know, and then invest in that and see where it takes you. You know, I got into running quite by accident and um, uh, ended up running the San Francisco Marathon. And in front of me, we're, as we're going through the Presidio, the courses, of course, have changed, but it, we're running down through the Presidio. And there's a five, I think, four guys and a gal. And they, they were obviously, judging by their body language and the conversation, they were, they were working to help the gal finish the marathon. And I'm noticing their singlets, buffalo chips. So we finished, and I wondered, what are buffalo chips? What's that all about? And so at the finish, I, I found one of them. I said, tell me, what, what's the buffalo chips? He said, oh, it's the buffalo chips running club. We're out of Davis, and we do ultras. And I said, what's an ultra? And they said, oh, it's anything longer than a marathon. I said, you got to be kidding me. There's something longer than a marathon? Because I had just done my first one. And, you know, it was solid through 20, 21 miles and then staggered home. Uh, and uh, they said, oh, yeah, there's 50 milers and there's 100 milers and there's, you got to be kidding me. So I signed up and got up the one of those old old um, runners, uh, ultra running magazines. They were mimeographed, you know, and stapled together and sent from someplace in Massachusetts. <laughs> I think that's where they were originated from. Anyway... So I got ultra running, huh? Wonder what that'd be like. And so I explored that for a while. And uh, and what I find personally satisfying is that I learned a lot about myself doing those ultras. I was never going to be up in front. And sometimes I didn't even finish. But I learned a lot about what works for Don Swartz and um, and and I 
talk to our athletes about that sometimes, you know, maybe, maybe the real value of pursuing this goal is not actually getting the goal so much, though that would be nice, but it's what you learn about yourself in pursuit of. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the life, the lonely life of a long-distance runner or a swimmer or, you know. I mean, you think about a golfer. People go, That's, is that really a sport? Well, actually, yeah, it's competitive and it's physical, so I guess it is a sport. But, you know, you hit a bucket of balls at the driving range, that's one thing. You hit 500 balls, that's a, different, that's a whole different thing. You know, and what do you learn about how you learn to the nuances of that motion? You know, and, the, and in that and the, in that particular sport, one stroke over a weekend, one stroke over four days of golf is the difference between a million and half a million, or I guess now, twenty million and five hundred thousand, whatever it is. Yeah. So I think like beyond that though the the takeaway is whether it's running swimming golf whatever it happens to be like these these races these events these these goals they're they're fleeting and they're always they're always going to change it can't just be about hitting you know the time or placing at the meet um there's got to be a greater you know lesson there and that's just something that comes with you know time and experience and putting your reps in we have a lot of master swimmers who come back to us that are in their 30s. Now, I haven't swum for, since college. I haven't swum since high school. But I'm a little fat and I'm a little out of shape and I need to get back in. And, and so you provide an environment where it's stimulating physically, socially, mentally, and they're hooked. And now they're swimming for a completely different reason. Mm-hmm. And you could argue a much healthier reason, you know, before it was to make the varsity or get a scholarship or make the Olympic team. And now it's... Makes them healthier, makes them a better parent, makes them a better employee. <laughs> I mean, all the things. It makes the day go better. Yeah. You know, you perhaps are familiar with the, with the book, I want to say it's uh, Shock. Is that it? Am I saying that right? It's the science of the brain. I don't know that I they, they, Because they can measure brain activity now, um, they have determined that if you start your day with exercise, Spark is the name of the book, Spark. Uh, start your day with exercise, your brain functions much better. I believe that. Uh, and so the Naperville School District, Chicago... Mandatory zero period PE for everybody. You don't have to do anything competitive, but you have to come. You can dance. You can climb the rock wall. You can jog around the track. You can ride a stationary bike, but you have to do something physical. Got to move your body. Yeah. Move. And you know the, the measurement academically grade grade wise, everything went up. And discipline problems went down. Uh, you know, I think me personally, I've always been a get up and go in the morning type of person. If I haven't exercised by 
2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I'm probably not going to exercise today. But if I can get up and, you know, run or walk, I don't run anymore. I walk because everything hurts when I run, or sometimes I swim a little bit, lift a few weights, take a Tai Chi class, Pilates, that's where I was this morning before I got together with you. You know, do something physical. It's good for you. And it and the people think stress is bad for you. Stress isn't bad for you. It's if you can figure out how to modulate the stress. And so that's why a lot of people feel really good if they after work they go to the gym. Because they take the mental, sometimes emotional stress out of the day and replace it with a physical stress and then they feel better. Well, duh. Yeah. <laughs> And and there's no good or bad. I think it's whenever it works for you. I mean, tonight I'm going to go into San Francisco and coach a track workout for the Golden Gate Triathlon Club. People are going to show up there after work. I see it every week. You can see it on someone's face. I'm sure you see this at the pool oftentimes too. You see you see the stress. You see that they're worked up about something. And then they get through the warm-up. And they're talking to the other people that are there. We get the intervals started. And, I, I mean, almost like 10 out of 10 times it starts to melt away. And then by the time the workout's over, they're just, you know, who cares how the workout went? Maybe it went great because they had a lot that they had to let out. But, you know, it just it just helped to relieve that. You know, it helped to balance out whatever it was that built up, you know, throughout the day. And there's, you know, there's a lot of power in, in that um, and in sport and, you know, in general. Well, look at the look at the science and the, the medicine behind the power of meditation. You know? There's... there's there's no question that meditation is is good for you, is, is healthy. Is you know, and people say, well, it's not. we do a thing uh, that I learned from uh, Katie McLaughlin. Um, it's called the two-minute float. You, after a, a warm-up period, say, okay, we're going to do a two-minute float, and they look at you like, what? Yeah, I want you to just float for two minutes. I'll call out when two minutes is up. Hook your, hook your heels over the lane line, put a pull boy on, lie on your back, lie on your stomach with a snorkel so you can breathe whenever you want. And after two minutes, they're like, they're, they're like so happy. You know, I, had, I did, I will tell you this, I had one guy say, that was really hard. I didn't like to do that. And I thought, okay, well, don't come on Wednesdays because that's when, <laughs> that's when we do a two-minute float. And the other day, I, for some reason, I didn't do it where it usually comes. And somebody said, what about the two-minute float? I said, oh, okay. They were looking for it. And then, and, then, and then I've had some people say, how many rounds of that? <laughs> because... It feels so good. You want more of it. Yeah, it's just like, okay. You know, and we talk about you can do a two-minute float at home. You know, on the sofa, on the floor. I like it. I like lying down and putting my feet up on that ottoman there. Just my legs are relaxed. My low back is relaxed. My neck is relaxed. You know, Aton, I'm going to do that when I go home tonight. When Christine says, "What are you doing?" I'm going to say, "Don told me to do the two-minute float. I didn't need to be in the pool. Leave me alone." <laughs> we'll see how that goes over. I'll report back to you. Yeah, there you go. Um. Yeah, so I think uh, I think there's a lot to be said for alternating stresses and, yeah. and 
get get getting some exercise, and it makes you feel good to be fit. And as people say, I got to exercise to lose weight. You actually don't have to exercise to lose weight. You just have to change the caloric intake. You know, you can lose weight without doing a push-up. But it makes people feel like, yeah, okay, this is healthy. I think they relate exercise to being healthy, which is they know is intrinsically good for them. And, and they think back to how fit they were and how good they looked in the mirror when they were 17 and fit, you know? Um, so. All right, so I told you that we would come back to cycle training. Um, you are widely regarded as sort of the forefather of modern swim training. And back in, I believe it was the early... 1970s, you started introducing this concept, which, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was just alternating hard days with easy days. And I'm curious, especially as, as someone who did not have his own background in competitive swimming, how you came up with that? Well, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting story, uh, at least it is to me. Um, I stumbled on the swim coaching job the, the concept of coaching swimming quite innocently enough and um, found that I enjoyed it and got a job in San Rafael, dropped out of Davis and um, moved to San Rafael to take this job. And uh, the San Rafael Swim Club was one of several in the county. And the arch rival, if you will, was the Marin Swim Club. And they had a hard time keeping a head coach for who knows whatever reason. And I got a call from um, Dr. Will DeMont, who wanted to take me to lunch at Scoma's in Mill Valley. And so I went down there, and that was quite a lunch. He said, we have a problem. We can't keep a head coach. Would you like to be head coach of our team but let's merge the two teams. So he's not trying to steal me. And he said, you know, we have, we'll have more pool space, we'll have a bigger team, and, and we'll have a head, and we, the Marin Swim Club, will have a Marin, we'll have a full-time coach. So we, long story short, we did that. And um, we had some pretty good swimmers on our team from both clubs as we merged. And um, we were training at San Rafael High School with our senior group, which was the high school age kids that were pretty fast and reasonably committed to the process. And we would go to meets and we'd come back and some of the kids that didn't go to the meets, the, to the big meets like the national meets, would say, so how did everybody do? And I'd say, well, they did pretty well, you know. So-and-so improved three or four tenths or was within a half a second of her best time. And, and everybody, everybody with their body language said, well, okay. And I was used to this concept, having been introduced to high-level competitive swimming by exposure from George French down at Ladera Oaks in uh, Menlo Park, that you go to a big meet and you take big time drops. You know, that's, that's you, you train all season to get there and you go and if you hit your taper, you have a big time drop. And that's what everybody was anticipating. And we'd go and we'd come back and we were kind of like pretty ordinary. And 
I'm just wired to not like ordinary. You know, I just, I'm, if we're going to do this, if we're going to swim, I mean, at the time we were swimming 12 times a week and lifting three times. So we had 15 workouts a week. This was back before kids had AP classes and all that <laughs> stuff. And before they cared too much about SAT scores. Um, you know, that's, we're doing a lot of work. And I'm doing a lot of work. And we're not getting much return. So how do we fix this? Serendipitously, serendipitously, <laughs> um, at San Rafael High School, there were three of the top four race walkers, Bill Rainey, uh, Tom Dooley, and Gutz Klaufer. And some, I've, I don't remember the specifics. A couple of them were on Olympic teams. A couple of them were on Pan American teams. They were high-level, competitive, 20 and 50-kilometer race walkers. And I was befriended by all three, but particularly Gutz Klaufer, who is a nationalized, a naturalized uh, German, competed for the U.S. And he would hang out at the pool in the afternoons, and we'd have a nice conversation. And I shared with him my frustrations. This was the summer of 70. And um, I said, you know, we're just... We don't swim very fast when when, when it matters. matters. Yeah. yeah, it was like, and, you know, we're doing all this work. And so he asked rather innocently, he said, well, do you cycle? I can remember him saying that question, do you cycle? And I was thinking, like, bicycle? But that wasn't what he was, I said, uh, what do you mean? He said, you know, where you alternate hard days and easy days. I said, no, what's that? So anyway, that led to a conversation about the track practice, which was common in those days. And, Dr. you know, Bill Bowerman and some of those people. Uh, uh, I'm forgetting this moment. I want to say Jim Bush, the track coach at UCLA, um, and uh, spent some time reading uh, stuff that had been written by Dave Waddle's coach back in uh, Pennsylvania, I think. Anyway, long story short, uh, I discovered Hans Selye, who at the time was considered the father of stress. And lo and behold, you know, stress is not a bad thing. Uh, too much stress of the same kind is a bad thing. But if you alternate stress with recovery, you get adaptation to the stress in, in the world of swimming, you swim faster. Yeah. My previous podcast guest, Brad Stolberg, has what he calls the growth equation. Stress plus rest equals growth. Yeah, there you go. And, and swimming at the time uh, had two seasons, uh, an indoor and an outdoor. And the indoor was short course yards and the outdoor was long course meters. And, of course, in the world of swimming, all the international stuff is long course meters. Now, there are some short course meter meets, et cetera, but typically, especially in those days, it was short course yards in the winter, long course meters in the summer, spring, summer. And um, you would spend the months of September, October, November beating the living daylights out of everybody, in theory, building their aerobic capacity and their tolerance for discomfort and all the stuff that coaches talk about. And then you would do some racing and um, January, February, and in March, you'd go to a big meet. And the NCAA followed the same 
pattern. They had their season in the starting in the fall, and their championship meets were typically late, um, mid to late March. And uh, so we were in this pattern, this cycle of, uh, not a cycle, we were in this pattern, and we weren't getting what I deemed to be good enough results. So learning about the concept of alternating cycling between stress and rest, stress adaptation. Um, I played around with some stuff in the summer of 70, thinking about it, not doing anything about it, but thinking about it. And I made the commitment. And so in September, when we started back again, I sat down with the team and I said, look, we're doing okay, but we can do a lot better. And I'll take the responsibility for it because you guys are showing up, many of them, 12 times a week. Yeah, doing what I tell you, putting in the yards. Doing it. And uh, I said, so what we're going to do is we're going to do this thing called cycle training. And I gave them the rationale behind it and my story with Goods Cloffer and the studies I had read and the books and the articles. And and I said, so basically what we're going to do is we're going to work really, really hard on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. In the morning, we're going to come in and we're going to get some long, we're just going to get some yards in, four or 5,000 yards. And in the afternoon, we're going to come back and we're going to do some pretty serious interval training. And Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we're going to do little to nothing. We'll come in and loosen up after Tuesday night. Wednesday morning will be kind of a, you know, 2,500, 3,000, easy. Do a little stroke work. In the afternoon, we'll lift a few weights, swim a little bit, shoot the breeze. And so Monday, Wednesday, Friday became the recovery days. Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday became the stress days. And... um It was magical in that there's a predictability built into a cycle. And as a coach, we've all had athletes come to us on Monday morning and say, I feel great. I wish the race was today, Mm -hmm. but the race was on the weekend. So this built predictability into the cycle. If you are feeling great on Tuesday, awesome. If you're feeling crappy, you knew that you still had to do. We weren't going to let you do a makeover on Wednesday when right. maybe you would feel better. A little bit run down with a cold or had to, God forbid, stay up and study. You know, people weren't staying up and studying in those days, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, and so when we did go to meets early in mid-season, we were swimming fast, especially in comparison to the other people because we were not beat up we were a little bit rested. And so the, the, the knock that we got from our competitors and, and the coaches was, well, you're resting them in the middle of the season. Well, yeah, we're resting them on three days a week, but, you know, we're going some pretty serious stuff on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. And, of course, the kids liked it, being able to swim a little faster in, sure. in season. It's fun. And it boosted their confidence. So one thing led to another, and there we were. And we had a couple kids who were really fast, and one of them ended up breaking a world record, a couple world records, off of cycle training. And um, that pretty much set the tone. And 
you know, it would have been fine if um, if some of the kids had swum well. But when they all started swimming well, and I shouldn't say all, for the most part, the majority, and then when Rick DeMont broke the world record in the 1,500 meters, and then the following year in the 400 meters, everybody wanted to know what he was doing. And it was interesting because back in those days, club coaches weren't part of the Olympic contingent. Mm -hmm. That has changed somewhat now. But so when he went to the Olympics in 72, the coaching staff asked for detailed plans of how they can prepare all the different athletes from, you know, they come from a wide variety of programs. So I wrote down specifically what was to happen morning and afternoon of all these days. And the coaches were a little bit perplexed. And they were especially perplexed at the Olympics themselves during warm-ups when the two other Americans who were swimming the 400 meters are doing pace work and going 27s and 28s, and Rick's going 30 flat. And they're like a little concerned. And they've asked, Rick, how's that feel? You okay? You where you want to be? And he said, perfect. I'm right where I want to be. Well, he went four double O. He had eight 30 flat swims. It's actually a little negative split in there. But, you know, because, and so because of that success, then everybody was curious. So I was asked to speak at a coaches convention uh, not long thereafter. And everybody was interested. And I'm not saying that to make myself feel important because I know who I am. But they were curious. And they were paying attention. And I think that's where the whole thing started. Yeah, light bulb went off for everyone People else. People going like, geez, well, that's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a good story with a happy ending. And uh, maybe there's something there. And, I'm, and I, it's like, I'm not inventing anything. I'm just borrowing. Track and field. Plagiarizing, if you will, from the track people. They've known this forever. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's how the whole thing got started. Now everybody cycles. It's common, common in the jargon now. You know, you have mesocycles and microcycles and et cetera. Yeah. A couple questions that I have off of that. One of them is, is just pure curiosity. So, I mean, this is the early 1970s. So, I mean, if this had happened now, someone would find you online like that um, and barrage you with emails and questions and, and all this stuff. So you mentioned how you spoke at this conference, but were people getting your phone number, giving you calls, sending you letters, showing up at the pool, being like, Coach Schwartz, what is, what is happening here? Like, what, what, was, what was that like? In the, in the early days, um, the, there was a group of coaches who founded the American Swimming Coaches Association. And I should know, but I can't recall... So I do, I do know, but I can't recall, uh, early, mid-60s, this group of coaches said, wouldn't it be good for our profession to have this group of... And so they formed the American Swim Coaches Association. And 
late 60s, early 70s, there started to pop up clinics. And the American Swimming Coaches Association, which is still very, in fact, they just last week, they had their whatever umpteenth annual convention. And they have what is what was called at the time, still is a world clinic sponsored by American Swim Coaches Association. Mm-hmm. And coaches would fly in from all over the world to share ideas and hear the latest, greatest pitch, you know. And so wh- whoever was Mark Spitz's coach and George Haynes coached a zillion Olympians. And so he would always get up and, you know, the same cast of characters would always get up and and say what they were doing. And some of them would be more truthful than others. And um, But in general, the American swimming coaches seem to be more willing to tell the truth. Some of the uh, the foreign countries, especially Europeans and Russians, they weren't quite so forthcoming, and so there wasn't much from them. They they weren't invited to speak. It's not because of any bias. It's just they wouldn't open up. Mm-hmm. And we're all in this kind of, that was back in the days of Kumbaya, you know, everybody wants to help everybody get faster. If I help you coach better, then your swimmers will swim faster. That'll help me have my swimmers swim faster. It's a nice, you know, nice cycle. Yeah. And, and of course, things are so highly competitive now, and there's some serious money, at least for swimming, moving around. And um, we have a lot of international swimmers swimming collegiately in the U.S. Um, and so that causes some problems. Uh, at any rate, um, that that association still is very active and still promotes and promulgates coaching and coaching theories and um, you know and and they've gone beyond just the nuts and bolts of uh, you know get your elbows up and do this with your fingers and ten fifties on the minute produces something different than ten fifties every three minutes than ten fifties on the th- 40 seconds, you know, there's all kinds of, and everybody's got their physiological adaptations and all of that. But, it, you know, the, the human, if, you know, Bob Bowman, who's Michael Phelps's coach, you know, has a very simple quote that is still true today, which is, swimming fast is not complicated, and it's not easy. Love that you can you could insert a lot of things in there for swimming, and yeah. the same statement would hold true. I just in my world, I think of it as, as running. It's like when it comes down to it, it's not that complicated, right? But it's also not easy. Yeah, and you you have to, so you have to find people that are willing to do that extra, and willing to explore, and be willing to change their technique that they learned back when they were six and eight and ten, and you know the the best coaches today still learn from their fastest athletes. Johnny Weissmuller, the Tarzan, um, back in the, I don't even know when he competed, 40s, 50s. Um, he was the first guy to break a minute for 100 meters. And he swam with a bent elbow. And his coach was furious with him. Swim with your arms straight, like the back of a paddle wheeler. That's how you go fast so Johnny got tired of the coach yelling at him in practice and he would swim with his arms straight but in the meets he'd swim with his arm bent because he knew that was faster and the really sharp coaches 
can identify and see, and then they watch and they learn. I'm sure that Bowman learned a lot from watching Phelps, Phelps yeah. and I'm sure Phelps learned a lot from Bolt. You know, it's 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 inevitable. You know, if you were Usain Bolt's coach, you learn by watching him. You probably also added to to what he was doing, but you know, you're you're seeing it, and he's now coaching that. Uh, the fella whose name I can't recall, the the current two hundred meter guy, mm-hmm. um, who just I think he just won the hundred at the at the recent world championships as well as the two hundred. But you know, it's it's an evolutionary process, um, and people are intrigued with swimming faster, running faster, throwing the javelin farther, whatever the thing is. You know, I mean, imagine the audaciousness of Fosbury going over the bar backwards. Whoever thought that up? Well, that was a good idea. And now everybody does it. <laughs> so, 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 you know, biomechanically, we learn stuff by experimenting. And um, if you've got an athlete, and in our case, a swimmer, who's frustrated enough to want to make change and willing to make change willing to go slower for a while until they figure out mm-hmm. then that's a that's that's something that's exciting from the coaching end. That, that's why i go down to the pool every day so maybe there's somebody down there today who's got something to offer me and that i can offer to or i can take what she's offering me and share it with him yeah i, I think that's such a helpful perspective because i've learned through my own experiences that coaching is a two-way street i mean you can't go in as a as a know-it-all um you have to go in and observe and be willing to learn from those that you're purportedly leading um as well but you know especially if the athlete hires you or wants to be a part of your team they clearly are going to lean on you for some stuff as well and i and Sometimes I think that's implicit in a coach-athlete relationship, but I think sometimes it actually needs to be vocalized in, in this way because not every coach, especially the coaches, don't don't see it that way. I mean, I, I've seen a lot of coaches, um, certainly in my world of running, but other sports as well, who just approach it as a, a know-it-all. It's like, I, I can't learn anything from the athlete. I'm here to teach them. Uh, and I just think that's a, a toxic attitude. Well, I also find that it's a... It's a uh... The, the being open to learning and not being a know-it-all is very helpful at the early levels of development. Mm-hmm. Uh, the parents typically bring the kids to the coach. And, uh, you know, no five-year-old wakes up and says, I want to go learn to swim or I want to go on a, learn cross-country or to the gym and be a gymnast. You know, the parents are looking for things for kids to do. And in our sport... We're very fortunate because overwhelming majority of parents want their kids drown-proof. So they'll learn to swim lessons are pretty darn important in a family's development. And so we get a shot at them early. And if they show some ability for it and we can get them hey, why don't you join the local swim team just for fun to see what it's like because nobody goes down to the gym and practices basketball. They go down to play in the basketball games, the soccer games. Um, 
So let's see if we can't get them interested in swimming. And then, and, and maybe some of those will eventually become competitive swimmers. And if they get the vibe early in the development that this is a back-and-forth kind of progression in terms of learning, um, then I think it, it, it helps us capture curious kids. Mm-hmm. And I think kids that are curious, um, you know, th- then we can work with that, you know. Uh, we, in, our, in our sport and, and in your sport, there's, you know, there's people that like to run, but they're not all that excited about running. So they'll play soccer. In our sport, they'll play water polo. Um, takes a certain kind of person who wants to run in circles, swim on a black line. Um, so what we're looking for are those people. And then seeing if we can get them excited about running in, in a circle faster or swimming faster on the black line. And if we come at it from a collaborative point of view as opposed to a my way, I know more than you know, and today I might know more than you know, but I might also learn something from you as you progress. So I, uh, I you know, and there's a lot of my way or the highway coaches. And um, uh, when, I, when so I got involved in swimming and then I got out of swimming and when I decided to come back in, um, here in the county, there were two programs. And one of them was run by a guy who swam for me in the 60s and 70s, but he had a pretty dictatorial approach. It laid to practice, 25 push-ups, that kind of thing. And if you think musically, um, he was like the, think John Philip Sousa. And, and Ken, who was the other guy who swam for me, North Bay Aquatics, it's like the Grateful Dead. You know, often really good, sometimes not so hot. <laughs> you know, but some of the music, when it's good, it's really, really good. And so that's the kind of program that we have. And it's still that way. It's not our way or the highway. Um, it's like, let's, let's see how well we can make this music play. And sometimes you get to be the Jerry Garcia, and sometimes you're the rhythm guitarist. <laughs> how do you spot that? "Quote unquote," it in an athlete. Well, it's interesting. Right now, Brock Purdy, the 49ers quarterback, mm-hmm. um, recently described by Steve Young, Hall of Fame quarterback, as having what Steve called it the force. There's that something intangible that you can see, and what he, Steve Young, was saying is that the higher the noise volume, the more pressure the more intense people who have, again, what he calls the force, but people who have it, for them, things slow down when for everybody else, it gets crazy and just staying on point becomes near impossible. And for people like... You know, Purdy seems to be. It's awful. He's got a small sample size right now, but it's like, you know, he's he seems to be okay when it's chaotic. And I think uh, a uh, 
a football player, especially a quarterback, is a lot like a point guard. You know, that point guard comes up and there's nine other people on the court and there's only one ball. And the object is to get that ball through those five guys into the hands of one of your guys and get it through the hoop. And it's all contained in a rather small space. Um, so, you know, I, I look at this a lot like I got in, involved quite by chance in uh, ultra running for a while. And, and, you know, there's all kinds of ways to approach a race. And, um, and there's all kinds of paths. And sometimes the most direct path is, is the least advisable, depending on the course and the time and the day and you. Um, so, you know, I think the, I think the really consistently high level performers figure out how to stay calm when the rest of the people around them aren't. And, um, I think a lot of it, I I think a lot of it has to do with the athlete's ability to tap into flow. Um, there's been a lot of stuff written and dissected about the, the the concept of flow and one of the books that popularized it in sort of in the mainstream was um Kotler's book uh the rise of superman about what's that book 10 or 12 years old now and the but because the measurement tools are available we can see what goes on with brain waves and we can measure people's ability to handle stress and we've figured out about dopamine and a lot of those neurochemicals that get flushed into the system when certain things are uh, available and we spend a fair amount of time with our swimmers and these are just teenage kids and and even younger we talk about flow a lot and and almost every swimmer has experienced flow and it's it's real simple they swim a race they touch the wall activating the touchpad, look at the scoreboard, it's the best time. And their reaction is, my God, I didn't even hurt. They hop out and they run over to the coach and they're all excited. Said, I could do that again, right now. Well, there is a physiological price that you pay every time you exert, but when you're in flow, you don't notice it. It, it doesn't hurt in that context. And um, so we talk a lot about two of the main things are the, um, you know, staying present and staying non-judgmental. Um, the, the flow genome project, a, a lot of the flow stuff is, few, is, is paid for by Red Bull because of the X Games. And, and those people are continually pushing boundaries. Um, in our sport of swimming, there's, we don't have true danger. And that's one of the things that... Um, you know, you go off a half pipe, and if you don't do it right, you could end up on your head and paralyzing yourself. Well, there's there's nothing in the sport of competitive swimming that has that amount of fear slash bad outcome to make you really dial in and focus. And you you don't actually care what you had for breakfast right now because you're you're making sure that you don't mess up. Um, we don't have that, but we do have the ability to stay present, do the lap you're on. Don't think of the entire thing and then boil it down. Just do the stroke you're on and, um, and then 
be non-judgmental. If you're if you're constantly criticizing yourself, um, I wonder if did I go out too fast? What Am I going to have enough to finish? Yeah, yeah. You know, then 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 that those things block flow. So we're we're doing a lot of that, and um, the uh, the fellow who from Europe uh, chick sent me high. Um, Impressive, you could pronounce that so easily. I always have a <laughs> um, hard time doing that. I, 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 I wanted to learn to do that, so I wrote it down, <laughs> the phonetic. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's fascinating work. You know, so to to, and so guys like that are pioneers, and there's some guys right now who are pioneers, and you know, they'll be famous, hopefully before they pass. But you know, after you had the light bulb moment about cycle training and you had some great results from your team at the time you just mentioned um what rick demont was able to accomplish and i mean it's still largely how you coach today but how did you evolve your philosophy over the past several decades just trial and error really you know having the luxury if you will of coaching a club team so long as i'm Got my eye on the ball, and parents feel like. But parents vote with their time and their checkbook, um, much like all of us as consumers. And so, if the parents feel that their youngster is being cared for and being nurtured while still being challenged, and they see improvement, um, they continue to support. And in our sport right now, the 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 biggest thing, especially culturally here in Marin. Uh, and in other places, Marin's not unique in this sense, but you know, everybody's taking AP classes. It's not enough to take physics; you got to take AP physics. And uh, the whole goal is to get into a really good college, to get a really good education, to supposedly, I guess, get a really good job. And um, getting into college is super competitive, and uh, so if you can swim really well. You may or may not get scholarship money, but you'll get noticed and you'll get help with the admissions process to getting into a college. And um, so if you can show the parents that by coaching their kids to be good humans and at the same time getting them to be faster so that they can land in a good college... um, then you got job security. And so what I do is I work my way through that is I find myself still coming back to the basics of stress and rest. At, you know, now there's different types of stress. And, um, you know, we do the same thing in the weight room. I'm not in charge of that. We have other people that do that, but it's the same thing. You know, we do this kind of lifting on one day and a different kind of lifting on the next day. And, and, um, You know, I, I I guess, I mean, I write down all the workouts. We, we record all the workouts that we do. And if if something goes particularly well, if I feel like, ah, they really, they got into it that day. They were, they really, they bought in. They, they got lost in the sets. They didn't, they weren't preoccupied with how much longer do we have to do before I get to go home. But if you can get that, that, uh, 
lost in the process. Uh, and, and you can repeat that rather regularly. Um, you'll get you'll get good stuff. And 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 um, we've got really we've got some really creative stuff going on right now with the stuff that Max is doing with raising awareness about how your body is in the water. And I've always felt that you know if you can figure out how to fit in the water and work with it then then you're on to something and then if and then if it means enough to you you can get pretty darn fast now you might not have world record speed ability but you know the world's full of unrealized potential and so what you want to do is you want to say okay what can we do with this person you know no one's ever going to swim the 100 free in 0 seconds flat not going to happen but you know, right now they're figuring out how to go under forty, guys, and um, so you know you just have to you just have to keep keep at it, being okay with not trying to be perfect. You know, I tell the kids all the time. You know, if you have a perfect, don't aim for perfect. If you have a perfect race, you better hang up your goggles because you're never going to do any better. But you can always be more excellent. You know. I mean, Phelps is a classic case because of his longevity. You know, he'd go four years, sometimes improve two-tenths of a second, but what he was really good at was getting on the wall first. That's what he was really good at. And a variety of people took shots at him and and, and were not successful. And uh, so, you know, he, I don't think he was chasing perfection. I don't know. I don't know the man. But... Um, I'm pretty sure he was really interested in being as good as he could be on that day and being okay with what that gave him. How have you grown the most as a coach in all the time that you've been doing this? I think I'm more patient now. Uh, I think I am willing to let people make mistakes. I'm okay if it doesn't work out. They know we still love them and care for them. Um, we can be disappointed with them, but we won't be disappointed for them. Um, if they're not that disappointed, I, I, I'm not going to be, you know, because it's, it's not my race, it's theirs. And I think by just meeting them one on one or collectively as a team with the attitude that, um, we're all in this to see what we see. What what, what can happen here? Um, you know, at the end of the day, when they throw dirt on you, you want to have a smile on your face and go, "I had a good run." You know, I I I, I did what I wanted to do more more often than not. I've, I I made a mark. Might have only been in a community of. Five people, my family, or it might have been in a bigger community, the community of the swimming community or the running community, you know. Um, and the other thing that we really have, really see regularly, and we are humbled by the fact that there is more than one way to get there. In swimming, they have 52 people make the Olympic team, 26 men, 26 women. They don't all come from four programs. 
you know, one year Eddie Reese, I believe, had eight or nine guys out of 26 guys. The other 17 came from somewhere, you know. So, so somebody or or somebody's coach and athlete or a mm-hmm. couple of coaches or maybe three or four athletes got together and and one of them made the Olympic team. But there was a collaborative, but it was a different, you know, there's, there's, what's the old thing? It's more than one way to skin a cat. The only thing that counts is getting all the fur. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I was, I was thinking about many roads to Rome, but yeah. Um, yeah, that one, that one works too. Yeah. I mean, so you, you know, right now you coach, correct me if I'm wrong, it's competitive club level for like high school aged athletes, but you also coach like my wife's master's program that meets you know, five thirty in the morning, right. several days per week. What's the difference between coaching those two just different age groups, demographics, people who are at you know different points in their in their lives, but also with their relationships to swimming? Um, it's really interesting. One of the nicest things, and, and I'm stealing from Ken here, Ken Demont. One of the nicest things about um, coaching master swimmers is, is you don't have to deal with their parents. Um, so. That's why I coach adults yeah. and, and don't coach high school. Yeah. Um, but having said that, um, there's still a lot of people who have competitive juices. And some of them are adults and some of them are youngsters. And some of our youngsters really aren't that competitive, which is Okay. You know, there's room for them. Um, they can still be good teammates and good training partners and add to the program. And um, and there's a lot of adults that are coming down because they enjoy seeing improvement or holding off the father time. Now, we have... We have Couple people, three people, uh, three people qualified. Two went um, to the uh, World Championships triathlon in Finland. What two, three weeks ago? Mm-hmm. And one guy's a young guy, he's in his late twenties, and he's on fire. And one guy's, I don't know how old Nick is. Nick, if you hear this, I, I apologize, but Nick's, Nick's. In his 40s, he might be 50. I don't know if he's that old. But he's still fired up about it. And he's still, you know, he's he's still, you know, he's one of our master's athletes who, I hate interval training. It hurts. But I'll do it because it makes me faster. <laughs> so so he's in that, in that group. We've got uh, several people who've done some remarkable open water swims. Mm-hmm. Um some of them not very fast, but you know it's remarkable when you think about it that you can swim. Some some gal just did something. What did Kim do recently? Swam. Uh, she was in the water like maybe twenty four or thirty hours in in you know cool water. And you know if, if you watch her swim in the pool, she looks. Unremarkable, but she's a remarkable person, and she's a remarkable swimmer. So there's all kinds, and we have a lot of people who just like to come down and swim. My own theory is that, you know, we spend the first nine months of our existence in fluid, 
So it's not a surprise that we like water. Uh, we live on the water here. We lo- I, li- I like looking at it. I like hearing it. I got a fountain out back that gurgles. Birds come. I like I like hearing that. I like being on it in boats. I like floating in it. You know, I I know how to swim, but I never was a competitive swimmer, so that that doesn't do as much for me as being outdoors on trails does. But it's uh, you know, I just I think, um, you know, and and masters kind of go through some cycles, you know. You see this with your wife. There's, she's getting ready for a, a big race, so she'll have a couple of pre-race races that she's work and she'll work through in, in, a, in a little cycle, and then she'll be done and she'll take a little bit more relaxed approach. But she still likes to exercise and it and it feels good to her, so she comes down and she does it. And um, you know, I got, <laughs> one woman went down to La Jolla for the there was a one in a 3.1 mile race. Oh, down in the in cove Illinois. down there. Yeah. Yeah. We just, just missed that by a week. Yeah. we. Yeah. Right. You were down there. So mm-hmm. they, so they did And this one gal, she won her division and, uh, you know, she said, I'll, I'll be back for Tuesday, but not this week. She, and she put in her email to me, glory days. Yeah. So, you know, you had, you had an awesome swim and, and it, it, on any given day, depending on who shows up, you might or might not be first or last, but, um, it's uh, and I think, I think there's something in people, and I don't know if this is just by the very nature of who we are or how we are or how maybe we're raised, but we like to test ourselves. Yeah, you know, we like to see, you know, if we can go a little faster or go a little farther, or maybe we can do. Five more sit-ups today, or two more pull-ups, or what? You know, just it's just part of. Man, I don't have it today. Man, I feel good today. Maybe I'll maybe I'll get that tenth pull-up. You know, whatever. I think that's part of uh, the human condition. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think you know, in the environment that you coach in, some of the environments that I coach in too, like there's a community element to it as well or a team element even if you're not going to a race as a team thinking about like your master's program you know if you show up to the pool tuesday morning at 5 30 there's going to be a few dozen other people there some of them will share a lane with you you're going to do the same workout you might not feel like being there but everyone else is there so that's enough to get you you know in the water and and i think that's a way um, subconsciously or or even if we're very well aware of it that we help each other just kind of get through with it and i think that's just like a nice life lesson as well yeah i you know surround yourself with like-minded people Mm -hmm. who may or may not be more accomplished than you are but it's it's the surrounding yourself with the people that's more important than the accomplishments you know um there's some there's multiple quotes about a life well lived and you know that kind of thing and uh so that's you know, I have friends who ask me or and other people, so when are you going to retire? So I'm 77, right? And um, I tell them I don't play golf and I don't make things out of wood in the garage. So if I stopped coaching, what would I do? What, what, what would I do? Well, I like going to the pool because I like water. 
I like being around people who like water. I like being around people who are interested in improving their swimming. And, um, and I like fast stuff. So I get to do that with older and younger people. And um, as, as, as long as I feel I'm relevant and appreciated, then I'll lean into it and I'll remain relevant and appreciated. Oh, and it clearly gives you energy as well at 77 years of age. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, so I heard something, I think this was from Stephen Kotler a little while ago. Aging is a fact of life. Old is a state of mind. I like that. You know, and I said, yeah, okay. I, I, can, I can work with that. You know, and I think, I think the words we use to choose how we describe ourselves and what we're doing, I think those words are important. You know, the, you know, there's the, the positive, what might happen that would be really good outlook as opposed to the, you know, man, oh man, I don't know. I just heard, um, heard a quote from um, Billy Corgan, Smashing Pumpkins. Yeah, one of my favorite you know, artists um, of all time. He's great. Uh, lean into success instead of waiting for failure. I like that. You know, Powerful. that's pretty, that's, you know. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think about that in my own life, certainly some of the conversations I've had with my athletes, and I mean, I'm guilty of it as, as anyone else. I think we've all had that kind of mentality at some point. You're, you're like waiting for the, the failure to happen. Waiting and, for the shoe to drop. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just like flip, flip, flip your mindset, lean into the success. I mean, I was having a similar conversation with one of my, one of my remote athletes yesterday. I was like, Jen, you've had a great, training cycle like you've hit everything um race the big races you know four weeks away i'm like tell yourself that you've done the work and that you deserve to have a good race and that you've been working toward exactly that like you you've done what it takes to be successful you can be successful rather than just fearing the beast that is the marathon and waiting you know waiting for that wall to hit you you know at mile 20 like yeah that wall is going to come at some point just know that you've got the tools to bust right through it um that's what we've been working on these last few months yeah so i i like that framing of it i think i'm gonna borrow that from you and the, and the other one that i like um again from music um uh da, 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 drummer for nirvana um dave Grohl. dave Grohl. He has a book that came out rather recently. Yeah, I read. I read that. Um, oh, well, the three. Th- you only need three things to be successful, right? As a, a successful musician, you need three chords, a microphone, and an open mind. And I, it's, you know, really, when you think about it, break it down. It's pretty yeah, simple. It's, it's pretty simple. Three chords, a microphone, and an open mind. And um, what you do with that is up to you. So we had our swimmers think about what do you need to be a successful competitive swimmer? And one of our girls came up with, and so we've kind of adapted that and adopted that. He said, you need grit, you need a lane, and you need to be coachable. Yeah, those three things, you got a shot at being successful in a, in a competitive swimming situation. So, you know, keep things simple. 
Uh, you know, I, I if if uh, if this gal of yours that you're talking about, if you've ever wondered what it's like to being being in a very terrifying situation, find the, the it's a 12 or 13 minute video clip uh, TED Talks with Alex Honnold about the the climbing of Yosemite. Uh, in climbing of uh, the wall in Yosemite and how he did it, you know, and he spent years visualizing, you know, so he knew every step and he knew he could do every step. And so he did it, you know. He could have fallen, but he didn't. He, he knew rehearsed every step. it, he trusted himself. Yeah. And rehearsed you, it, put in the work and trusted himself. Yeah, I mean, you do the work and you, and you go. And, of course, he was able to stay in flow for, what, two or three hours, four hours, whatever it took him to scale that wall. Yeah, that, which that still blows my mind yeah. to, to this day. I mean, my right. palms were, were sweaty in the theater when we were watching, <laughs> watching that happen. A um, few more things I, I want to hit on with you. One thing I'm super curious about, I read that in the late 70s, you founded something that was called the Creative Performance Institute. And... Sounds like it went on for eight years, and you taught the mental side of the game to coaches and and athletes. How did you go about discovering that, and what did you do exactly? One of one of the parents of our swimmers back in the seventies came to me and said, "I just went to a sales conference up in Napa, and we had a presentation on goal setting, and." Uh, all I could think about was, you know, my my kids swimming and your coaching and all of that. So that's how that started. So I looked those guys up, went to one of their seminars. Um, they were working to adapt that to youth sports at the time. Um, could see the relevance of that. Uh, got involved with, believed, you know, what what I heard and felt was very true. It all it all came out of the Pacific Institute with uh, the gentleman's, I want to say Lou Tice, up in the Pacific Northwest. But the Pacific Institute taught self-image psychology and um, how to change your comfort zones and goal setting and how that worked. And so being exposed to that, I got those guys to do a presentation to the national team. I was one of the coaches in 1975 for the world championship team. And I got them to come in and spend a few hours with the team. And um, they didn't have the swimming lingo. I had the swimming lingo. So I sort of co-presented uh, uh, so that it, it would make sense in terms of swimming vernacular. And then I thought, well, I could do that. And so I went to them and I said, I'd like to take your material and present it. And um, the guy said, I'll split it 50-50 with you, the proceeds. And I said, I sort of had more in mind uh, 90-10, since I'm the one who's got the swimming knowledge. And I'm going to take your material to swimming and I can earn you some free money. Well, we arm wrestled a little bit, and so it didn't work out. So I went to my attorney. He said, it's all public knowledge, all that stuff that they're teaching. Mm -hmm. 
self-image psychology, you know, Maslow and all those guys. I mean, that's out there. So I went ahead and formed my own gig, which I called the Creative Performance Institute, and I got jobs in the swimming community here and overseas and um, did also some local football stuff and basketball and that kind of thing because I I was a coach. Mm-hmm. So I, I had a source of credibility. And so I spent about eight years doing that, and that was uh, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of work, a lot of travel. Was that all you were doing at yeah. the time? Yeah, that's all I did. I, I you know I worked thirty thirty five weekends a year, um, and during the rest of the time, I made phone calls to try to get gigs and um, and ran. And did you get back on the pool deck after? You shut that down because you had mentioned earlier how you took a, a period of time away from yeah. What happened was swimmers. Um, I, I I went from teaching seminars and workshops and that stuff um, to I got involved in the uh, check cashing and money services business, mm-hmm. and another guy and I bought a bar in San Rafael and we turned it into a rock and roll joint, and that was from ninety four to 80, from eighty four to ninety four. And then um, I was uh, we, I, I stepped out of the bar business, but kept the, my interest in the check cashing business, and um, that was a, a, a rather lucrative business at the time. Um, no longer is. Um, we, we shut it down. Uh, in fact, in uh, at the end of October a year ago in, in 2022, but um, at any rate, so I did that for a while, and then I had a heart attack. And one of my um, swimmers heard about it and said that um, they were going, they, meaning some of the guys that swam at Arizona with Coach Bob Davis, were going to the NCAAs in 2005 in Minneapolis um, because Arizona had a pretty good chance to win or be top three and. So I said, well, can I tag along? Because I knew all those guys. And they said, sure. So I went to the, to the meet, and um, it was immediately apparent to me the positive energy that was literally trapped inside because the meet was indoors. And all these people were racing for excellence, and there's only 40 guys in each event. It's a very strict qualifying time, limited field. And uh, and the Cal guys wanted to beat the Stanford guys, and the Texas guys wanted to beat the Auburn guys. But when anybody from any school did anything exceptional, which was every race, everybody applauded. Everybody was worshiping, not worshiping, acknowledging the excellence. And I was struck by that. And I thought, you know, to the extent that I've had success in my life personally and professionally, I owe a lot of it to this sport of swimming that got me into this kind of community of excellence and celebrating excellence. And so I was really excited and I I called Madeline on the phone. I said, you got to get on an airplane and get out here and see this. She said, call me every night and tell me about it, (laughs) which I did. And, you know, and I was screaming, I was hoarse and I was, you know, I was like totally in it. And on the way back, I thought to myself, I need to do this again. 
So I got back and had the two choices, John Philip Sousa, yeah. The Grateful Dead. And so I called Ken DeMond up and we went and had lunch. You know, his dad took me to lunch decades ago. So I took Ken to lunch and I said, I'd like to coach. And he said, I don't have a budget, but you, if, if I got room for you. If, and I said, I don't need the money right now. I'm good. I just need the opportunity. So that's how it started in May of 2005. So it's been 18 years, yeah. a little over 18 years. Your second go. Yeah. And uh, you know, I just jumped right back in and fully immersed. And we've had at least one and sometimes as many as four people who either were representing our club or came through our club at Olympic trials from 2008, 12, 16, 21. You know, and we'll be again, we'll be there again next summer. We don't have anybody qualified yet, but we'll be there. I didn't realize that you were so entrepreneurially minded as you were describing all these different things that yeah. that you did. I knew about your check cashing business and realized that you had owned a bar. I mean, I think even a lot of the things that you did certainly early on with swimming, even though they, it wasn't with the intention of like making money, uh, very entrepreneurially minded, the Creative Performance Institute. Um, where do you think that comes from? I have no idea. And no idea. I just just like to try stuff. Yeah, I, I like to try stuff, and I and I have a overriding personal philosophy that if something's not fun, and I don't mean ha ha fun, but if it's not gratifying, if it's not sustaining you, then go do something else. Because there's lots of ways to pay the rent and put money on the table for food and gas. You know, so you might as well do something that's rewarding and uh, and and. And if, if possible, you know, giving back into the community in some way, shape, or form. And uh, so I just, you know, I've done seven different things in my life to earn money. One of them twice, coaching. And um, if it, when it stops being fun, I'm going to stop. And I'll do something else. Because uh, it's, you know, as we say, life is too short. And if you want to... Live long, you got to learn to live well. And um, so that's, again, that's my personal belief. So, so I think it's, uh, you know, I think it's, in, and I think it's incumbent upon all of us to be grateful for what we have. And one of my f- favorite sayings is be grateful and ask for more. It's okay to want more. It's not, it's, you're not being greedy. So long as you're grateful, you can ask for more. Last couple of questions that I have for you before we wrap this up. At 77 years old, I don't know exactly how many years you've been coaching now, especially with the break there in the middle, but a long time. You've been coaching a long time. You've been around the pool, so to speak. How do you stay sharp as a coach all these years into it? When I go to the meets, I watch. I try to be an observer of what's going on. You know, there's a local team here who swims very fast, and their kids always swim in a circle. And I go, and you know, I wonder why they're doing that. Because if you swim a 50-yard race and you swim on the black line, you swim 50 yards. If you're swimming in, in any kind of line other than a circle, other than a straight line, you're swimming more than 50 yards. And I have a girl on our team 10 years ago who was really brainy, and she showed me how much difference swimming off the line 
six inches, one foot, one and a half, two feet. Because you know, because when there's more than one swimmer in a lane, they swim in circles. Well, you can imagine if a, I mean, look at the, why do they have staggered starts on, on the track? track? Right, exactly. Because they want everybody to swim to run 400 meters, and so. Uh, so that's that's an example, you know. I go look at that, you know. Why why is that? Why why do they consistently do? I mean, and for years. Why do people take breaths off of a turn when it's faster to push off the wall and hold your breath because you that's the fastest part of the race when you push off a solid surface. Why do people do that? Well, it's because someone's not teaching. Not, has, hasn't made a compelling enough case yet for that. So I just, I look and I, you know, and, I, and I'm 100% invested in the kids that I coach and the adults that I coach that are also invested. Some of our adults come down and they, they come down for exercise and to be outdoors and to be with like-minded people. That's why we were successful during COVID because it was a place they could exercise outdoors in a relatively safe environment with like-minded people. And some of those people just want to exercise, but some of them actually want to improve how they move through the water. And so that's why I go to the pool. I could go to the pool, put a workout on a whiteboard and sit down. That's not coaching. That's opening the pool door and making the water available. Yeah, you're just facilitating. I, I might as well stay at home. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, you know, I just, you know, and I continue to read. I continue to listen. I, I've started listening to podcasts. Some of it, you know, some of it's a little bit dreary. Some of it doesn't have much to offer. Um, but there are some compelling people out there, you know, and, and people are figuring stuff out and are interesting and, Again, you know, this coach is really hot because he's got the fastest guy or gal in the water right now. And some of them actually have some things to offer. And some of them are just, you know, yeah, that's that's the same thing that so-and-so did 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. So, you know. Last question, and it's a admittedly completely selfish one. So... A little more than half your age. I hope to be doing this for the rest of my life. Hopefully, another three, four, five decades. Who mm-hmm. who knows? Um, what advice would you give to me, someone in their early forties who's been coaching to to varying degrees um, for more or less the last twenty years or so, but would love to do it for the rest of his life? Um, I would make sure that people vote for you with their wallet. In other words, you know, don't be bashful to ask for money. Don't be don't be embarrassed to say I have to eat. I need to go on vacation. I need to put a new roof on my house. I need to buy a car every 10 years. That stuff costs money. And so you need to pay me. And most coaches are afraid or not willing to ask for money. There's a a group of about six or eight fairly prominent teams in the 580, 680 
junction over there, Pleasanton, Livermore, that, you know, San Ramon. And one of the guys was saying to me, you know, it's really hard to make ends meet. I said, yeah, well, you live in the Bay Area. Why don't you raise, how many kids you got on your team? Got 100 kids. Raise the dues 10 bucks a month. Give you another 1,000 to work with. Would that make a difference? Yeah, that'd be nice. Well, why don't you do it? Well, if I do, I'm afraid they'll go over the other. Yeah. If they're going to leave you. For 10 bucks a month. For 10 bucks a month, then you're not doing a very good job. You know, we our dues are higher probably than anybody in the Bay Area. And it's not just because we live in Marin. But when you break down and you divide by the hours, kids are paying less than six bucks an hour. Or if they take advantage of all the hours that are available, and they're available, those hours are available to them because we offer the programming and we have to pay for the pool and the weight room. You know, you can't expect people to work for free. You know, you don't take a vow of poverty when you say, I want to be a coach. It's a profession. And you have to look at yourself as a professional and say, you know, I'm worth it. And if I can't convince you that I'm worth it, then I need to get better. Or you will vote with your time and your money and go somewhere else. And so that's, you know, that's the, that's, there's, there's no, there's no shame in wanting to be paid. None whatsoever. And, um, and the other thing that I would say is figure out how to make it interesting to you. Figure out what it is that interests you and do that stuff and do it really well and people will find you. You know, it's, it's okay to promote yourself. It's okay to, it's okay to tell your athletes, you know, when they say thank you, you tell them, you're, you're, you're more than welcome. And if you know anybody who you think would benefit, I'm easy to find. And, you'll, and, and those people, because they're out there bouncing around in their environment, and someone in their office is bitching and moaning about how they can't get off a square one on their running, and they'd sure like to break four hours in a marathon or, you know, 50 minutes in a 10K, and how do they do that? Well, you, you need to talk to my coach, Mario. What do you mean? You got your own coach? Yeah. How much does he charge you? He charges me X. Huh. That's a, that's a little bit, but you're running pretty fast. Oh, maybe that's worth it to me. You know? And so I think uh, being willing to tap into the larger market for which you have built-in salespeople, your current customers... I, I, I think that's, you know, whenever anybody says to me on the pool deck, you know, that was an awesome workout. My response is, thank you. I'm glad you were here. Tell a friend. Easy as that. It's just, you know, and they may or may not tell a friend, but at some point people say, you get up at five o'clock in the morning, three days a week. What do you do that for? Well, I got, I got this really cool swim program. Oh, well, I can't swim as much. 
There's all shapes and sizes. We have people in their 80s on our team. They're not swimming very fast, but they like to swim. It's part of who they are. Um, we have some people in their 40s and 50s who don't swim very fast at all, but they like it. You know, for whatever reason, we got some people that run a little bit and swim a little bit and lift weights a little bit and bicycle a little bit, and then maybe one day they'll go and do a triathlon. The local Marin County one, whatever, you know, a, a, a real you know, 400-meter swim and a <laughs> five-mile bike ride and a two-mile run or something, you know, or whatever. And, and, um, and the next thing, they'll go there and they'll go... You mean there's something more than this? Well, yeah, you can go all the way up to an Ironman. You could actually, if you wanted to, do an Ironman in seven days on seven different continents. <laughs> you know, there, there's no end to it now. That's yeah. right. There yeah. isn't. No. The, the The only limitation is our imagination. You know, that's the only limitation. You know, is our imagination. And so, if you figure you can handle 40 clients, could you handle 45? Maybe you'd say, well, I, I wouldn't want to spread myself that thin. So then you say, well, you need a new car, you better charge your current people more money. And if you're not valuable, they'll go someplace else and you replace them with someone who, you know, I mean, it's, it's a wonderful marketplace. It's, very, it's a very free marketplace. Well, I appreciate that advice. I'm going to take it all to heart. I've immensely enjoyed this entire conversation. I'll take that whole thing to heart, listen back to it myself. But, Don, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with me for the Morning Shakeout podcast. Uh, appreciate your interest. Um, really, really appreciate your wife. She's a great... Me too. She's, yeah, she's a great... And she's, she knows exactly how to fit in in the lanes that she swims in, and she's always... She's part of that community, and it's awesome, and... Uh, um, continued success and um, tell that girl to lean into success instead of waiting for failure when she goes the wall will be there yeah. <laughs> well I'm thrilled that Christine is on your team and a part of your program I mean she speaks highly of it every morning that she comes home from the pool so thank you for that as well um, and I look forward to continuing this conversation off the podcast awesome thank you Mario All right, that's it for this one. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen in. If you could, please leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you're tuning into this from. It means a lot to me, and it helps new listeners to discover the show. Also, a big thank you to my annual partners, Tracksmith, New Balance, Precision Fuel and Hydration, and Gooder for making it possible. Check out themorningshakeout.com slash partners to take advantage of some of the discount codes and special offers that are available exclusively to readers and listeners of The Morning Shakeout. Before we go, I'd like to give a couple more quick shout-outs. The first to John Summerford, who has edited and produced every episode of the podcast since we launched it in late 2017. He's the reason this show sounds as good as it does 
week in and week out. The second goes to Chris Douglas, who is my right-hand man and helps manage partner relationships. And last but not least, Nicole Bush, who gives me a hand with social media content strategy and creation and is my co-host for Training Talk Thursday, which you can tune into on Thursday evenings at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Morning Shakeout's Instagram account, which you can find at the AM Shakeout. And that's all I've got. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. <laughs>